Hi guys and welcome back to another episode of the Ashes Central podcast where today we look at the fifth and final Ashes test from down in Hobart, Australia of course with a four to nothing insurmountable um, three to nothing, excuse me, series lead. We had a, a draw. Pistol, be happy about that. We talked about that in our Sydney recap a few days ago. Now it is time to look ahead to this final test and, and a monumental and historic test. It is, of course, the first ever Ashes test down in the Apple Isle, Tasmania, Bell Reve Oval in Hobart um, is where the series will wrap down. It is the venue um, and a lot to talk about today. The Australian selection, um, you know, with batsmen and with the ball, you know, there are dilemmas for the selectors. Uh, for the English, there's a lot of questions, injuries and form, and a lot comes into it. And we'll ask Pearson the question, what is there to gain out of this final test um, outside of the obvious, you know, playing for pride and all that? Um, and then we're going to have quite a long round of good call, bad call. We've been doing it in the last couple of um, preview shows before the, uh, in the Melbourne and the Sydney test. Uh, where it was just Teddy and myself coming up with the prompts. So we're going to uh, do a bit of a rotate around uh, the group so we can all come up with our prompts and, and see if we can test each other's uh, knowledge on the spot there. Um, not quite a full crew here today. We've got Vaship, Tedwin Jarvis and Pearson Lynch. Ethan sadly can't be with us, um, but we'll hear some of his thoughts later on. Um, let's kick it off with the Australian side, guys. And I think we have to talk about um, what's going to happen with this number five spot. So obviously Usman Kawaja comes in for head with COVID um, up in Sydney, scores a couple of tons there. Um, you know, he's, he's already what the fifth most prolific scorer in the series. It's the ninth Ashes um, player to score two tons in a test. Um, head, I mean, before COVID, he was rolling along 248 runs at 62. He had that big ton in Brisbane, really consolidating that spot after he was probably seen as the most vulnerable one in the batting lineup. Then you have Marcus Harris at the top of the order. A lot of talk about whether or not perhaps Kalaja could be moved up the order. Um, you know, at the expense of Harris, Harris has 179 runs at 30 with scores of 38 and 27 in Sydney. So starts and nothing more. But um, we'll start with this, Pearson. Uh, I know in the last, I think it was today or perhaps yesterday, Ed Cowan, um, on the ABC Cricket Podcast, um, uh, you know, um, floating the suggestion of Manus Labashain opening the batting with Warner. You push Smith up to three. Um, you move Kawaja bats at four and then head bats at five as a way to uh, not send Kawaja up. To, I know you didn't like Kawaja as the opener. We've seen limited, um, albeit very good statistics from him in the opening position. Um is that perhaps something you'd, you'd come accustomed to, or do you think we're just going to see Usman Khawaja dropped as he did predict um, at the end of the SCG test? Head is, I'll, I'll, I'll start with the easy stuff here. Head is definitely safe. I think that's pretty much set in stone. And I don't think there's any doubt that he will bat at five. I think M. Cowan's suggestion is shocking, if I'm being honest. I think you look at your side and you say, Labashane and Smith, are miles ahead of any other batsman in your side. If you go for three months when you're in Pakistan, you have, I would say, three or at best four, depending on Warner, competent players of spin. You put your best batsman in your best in their best positions. You don't shove Labashane to open and Smith to three when they've batted and done so well for so long in their preferred positions. I think Kawaja, yes, he's good. But he's not Smith and he's not Labashane. He doesn't deserve these special privileges of batting four. I think he is, he's not played the first three tests because he didn't make it on merit. Whether that's the right or the wrong call is another question. But I think that means you have to put the players that were there that you don't intend to drop in their preferred positions. 
which is Labashane three, Smith four, and Head five, which I think leaves the only question to make is going to be who partners Warner at the top of the order. It can either be Kawaja or it can be Harris. I get the arguments for Harris. Personally, I would go Kawaja. I'm really not sure what they will do, but I hope they go, well, from an English fan's perspective, I hope they go Harris because he doesn't fill me with any nerves that he'll actually score runs, but I think they have to go Kawaja. I don't see any avenue in which it would be fair to drop him off the back of twin tongues in an Ashes test. And beyond that, I mean, we're always looking ahead to the subcontinental series. We're already pretty convinced that Kawaja will play thanks to what we did see in Sydney, but surely this is an opportunity to see if he can play as an opener in those conditions. Therefore, you don't have that concern with someone like Harris at the top of the order. And then, you you know, you can put head and, I mean, Cam Green, there's a whole bunch of people. That solves your issue at the top of the order and Kawaja's in, um, you know, and the masses are content with that. The first thing Pearson said, Teddy, was head's a lock. I was very surprised to see head. I mean, maybe he was just being modest. Um, I think it was a press conference saying that he wasn't entirely convinced to even make it back into the side um, with the harshness of selection. Surely someone like head can't miss out um, while someone like Marcus Harris is getting a go. Um, Kawaja and head, the two more informed players. What's your thoughts on the situation? No, Pearson's right with this one. Head has to play, averaging 62, that 150 in Brisbane. Um, but perhaps more importantly, you know, he's really building into that role as the, the enforcer almost down there at number five, an important role that we've lacked for a few years now. So he's a crucial cog in the team. Um, and just quickly, as to the, the openers, um, really, until a few days ago, I probably, well, actually, until Kawaja's second century, I would have said that Harris should probably stay opening just because, you know, he's, he's developing. Um, I think he's shown good signs of improvement across the innings and two more innings in Australia uh, would be really helpful for him going forward. But, you know, the Australian team, while it is a team, it's also, you know, an honour for different players. And you've got to go, when someone's made two centuries, you've got to reward that um, and give them the position. Uh, but, and uh, yeah, just as Pearson said on that, on that final idea of switching things around, the only reason that we've got this problem is because, you know, we've had so many players batting competently. You know, this isn't a problem that uh, is really, it comes out of anything bad for us. So you, you can't be switching around your team, threatening the, the you know, the structure of the team just uh, to give batsmen in their preferred position. So I think Kawaja opening um, and head at five is definitely the way to go. I guess the argument there is this is the last probably opportunity to experiment with that lineup and the series is dead, but I still think people would prefer as um, Pearson, as both of you have alluded to, play the players in the position that they're comfortable with. Um, don't try and get too clever or too cute with it. And people say, you know, oh, Harrison for the youth, Kalaja's 35. I mean, what's that? The second oldest Australian player to saw two centuries for Australia in a test match. Donald Bradman, 39 years and 127 days there. Um Aging yeah, like fine wine. I think Harris has a big future, and I think he will at least play in Pakistan for the start. Um, you know, if you're you're making faces here, both of you, but uh, that's at least what the Australian team team seems to think. And I, I think I'm beginning to see what they what they see in Harris um, as you know a gritty opener that he can be. But uh, yeah, you've got to go with Kawaja at least for this test. Did, we'll deal I, with yeah, the other Jim. problems later on. Generally, Teddy is full of quite sound reason. I'm not, I'm not so sure about this one. I think there's a limit to how far you can say he looks good as a justification for selecting a player. We look at England's a prime example of this with someone like a James Vince, who has a very, very similar 
career average and general flow of scores to someone like Marcus Harris. They both have looked actually quite adept of late. I mean, he looked a walking wicket in the first couple of tests and has looked, he was key in Melbourne and looked good in Sydney. But I don't think you can pick a player that averages 25 because he looks nice. I think you have to pick your best players. And I think even post this Kawaja year, I don't think he will be one of your seven best batsmen. So I, I don't see this fated career in test cricket that you seem to. I think it'll be someone like Bryce Street, someone like Henry Hunt, someone like Matt Renshaw even that will come in, or Pekofsky seems the incumbent, that will be the long-term opener, not Marcus Harris. You don't need all seven batsmen to be, you know, absolute brilliant batsmen. I think you can have a role for someone like Harris who is, brings something a bit different in the way he grits it out and he plays a I mean, good he, accomplice he, to he, gr he grits it out, but, but no, no side says we have six performing batsmen, therefore we can pick our 10th best batsman yeah, bat to fill the other He plays spot. a role. I think he can play <laughs> he a role. He plays a role. <laughs> We can but, discuss but what, this what another role, time. Bass what, what role can he here. play that the others can't? It, it frustrates well, me. Well, compared to Kawaja, you have I think to show brings... run output. <laughs> I yeah. agree, Kawaja's never scored runs in, in English conditions or in, generally speaking, difficult conditions. Another is Marcus also, Harris. He was open... Yeah, exactly. No, and he was opening the batting in that match saving 100 in the UAE the other year. There seems Correct. no I... real inclination to me that you should pick a player averaging 25 because he shows grit. You pick the player averaging 43. If he can show flamboyance, it's just he's got more skill and more talent. I, okay, I, I think I we'll move on from that. Disagree. We could talk about that for a long time. There are other, other things to get to. I would just say, Teddy, sounding like a, a bit of a spin doctor there, as if you're, I don't know, working for Cricket Australia, trying to convince us that literally well, everything is hope. rosy. Marcus Harris is one of the down points from this series. If you're looking for a negative, and I'm sure we will be covering, um, you know, the goods and the bads from this series in a, when we do a bit of a recap of the I'll series. Expect, I'll expect your apologies when he's making double tons in a couple of years after we start. Yeah, when, yeah, that, and that, pigs, that when pigs happen. fly, I think. <laughs> anyway, we shall move on. So, I mean, we're despite your uh, ferocious defence of Harris, you're still actually agreeing that we should play Kawaja? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, in this yes, test, definitely. indeed. Way to be a contrarian. Okie dokie. Moving on. Um, I mean, I, I guess the other position we're looking at is what's happening with the bowling quartet. Mitchell Stark. We know how good he's been in day-night tests. This, of course, is a day-night test. Uh, 52 wickets at 18. That's the best worldwide of any bowler. However, his average in the fifth test of series is 53. We've a lot of talk about that. I know Pearson loves that stat. They haven't rested him till now. A lot of people saying, well, now is the time. But conversely, you have this undeniably great record in day-night test. Now, he's come out and said that he's, I think the uh, the article caption was, he's pleading with the selectors uh, for him to keep his spot. Your thoughts, Pearson? Should they, uh, you know, rely on his superior stats in the, the day-night format? I mean, the pitch is looking quite green two days out. Or do they, you know, about a pressure and bring someone like a Richardson in? Well, I, I think, as, as you've said, he has well, he fronted the press today or yesterday and implored selectors to pick him, which is a strange move, I find, among players to tell selectors, you must pick me. But I, I like the, the approach he's taken there. I do think this probably isn't a question that I can fairly answer, or any of us, actually. I think with the Mitchell Stark, particularly considering his long-term 
degree of falling off as series have gone on. He's done it for most of his career. As you've said, I think he averaged 50 in the fifth test of series was the stat you just read. 53 versus much lower in the opening couple tests. So I think that's a fitness thing more than it is conditions. So I think you have to weigh up. Yes, he's very good in pink ball tests, but I think you have to look at him in training and say, is he bowling at full pelt and does he look right? And if he does, I think he is one of your three best bowlers in these conditions or three best pace bowlers, I should say. So he features. If he doesn't, then you don't play him. I didn't think his fitness looked perfect in the fifth day of the Sydney test. So maybe he is experiencing that drop off, but people say that of bowlers quite often and then they come back the next test and perform. So I think this is up to the coaches and how they see him in training. Yeah, absolutely. So Stark goes 24 average in the first test of a series, 24 the second, 30, 36 and 53. So it is really quite a rapid decline there. Uh, Teddy, your thoughts? Will we see Jai Richardson um, for the second time this series? Should mention, by the way, Josh Hazelwood still unfit with that side strain. Teddy? Yeah, well, it's an interesting one. Um, I, I think one of the things we've learned from this series is the value of bringing in other players um, as compared to other series, especially India last year, where we didn't make the big call with players like Stark, who were sort of struggling come to the end of the series. Um, you know, the fact Bolland is bound to come in and, you know, perform almost, he's almost been our strike bowler in the two tests uh, he's been in. It shows the value of that. You can go too far as England have at times also. But um, I think I agree with Pearson. If he's rearing to go in the nets, bowling really well, you probably have to play him. But I think um, they've got to not be scared to make the decision uh, to bring someone else in. And I think George Bailey, from what he's shown uh, over this series, that he is willing to make those, those sorts of calls, doing the sort of less um, conservative option, as we saw with bringing Bolland in um, and, and even Nisa and that also. So, yeah, uh, you know, it's we can't, we're not going to be able to decide one way, but it, it could go either way. Yes, Stark certainly raring to go there. 15 wickets uh, throughout the first four tests. That is second best um, thus far in the in the series. I mentioned Hazelwood, um, obviously unavailable, uh, and that's a bit of a shame. I mean, he has 13 wickets at an average of 13 in his two tests at Bell Reeve Oval um, over his career. Of course, Australia haven't played there since 2016. We'll get on to a bit of the history of Australian cricket at Bell Reeve Oval a little bit later. Uh, and, of course, presume that Scotty Bolland uh, and Pat Cummins retain their spots in the side. Well, I will, I will just very briefly butt in. No, there no are rumours of injury regarding Scott Boland because he was he did have a cartilage issue throughout the fifth day of the Sydney test. There is a chance he misses out. I think if he misses out, Stark is a certain selection. But yeah, I mean, it nullifies that play, debate. Obviously, it's up for debate again. Yeah. Yes, yeah, and it will be Richardson as first choice. Oh, yeah, pretty certain. Absolutely yeah. there. Yeah, so, I mean, they're the two, I guess, dilemmas that the Australian selectors have. And as we've said, they're probably good debates to have, put it that way. They have multiple bowlers, you know, who are in form competing for a spot and batsmen who are in form competing. Well, Harris isn't in form, but we'll, we'll move away from that debate. Um, the English side of things, and we'll come to you, of course, on this one, Pearson. Where have they got left to go? I want to start with the opening partnership. We saw Crawley impress in Sydney. Has time run out for Hasib Hamid and does Rory Burns come back in? We know that um, they're doing, uh, trying to find the way you, expri- you uh, described it, um, kind of quite, uh, severe work on his technique, trying to get rid of these uh, yeah, the, you know, the, significant yeah, deficiencies. Graham described it as a technical overhaul. Is how yeah. it's described by the. So, do you you know wait until that's complete, or 
do they keep, I mean, Hamid struggled. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, and you've talked multiple through many episodes, why that's the case. Um, do they put him out back again under lights in front of Mitchell's dark and co presuming he plays or, and, and leave him to suffer. And that could be the end of his test career. Who knows? Um, even at such a young age, or do they go back to Rory Burns? Well, I think just to state the obvious again, Crawley is a certain selection. He showed himself well. So I think now that we have that batsman that's guaranteed to play for the foreseeable, that does put pressure on the <laughs> opposition bowlers, you can afford to have a player that can sit in and bat balls, which is mainly, which is pretty much only the only thing Hasim Hamid can do. I do think there's a bit more to Rory Burns' game than Hamid. So I do think going forward, Burns will be the selection. I think we have seen, although he bats in a rather unorthodox manner, that when he's in good touch, he still does score relatively freely. We've seen that in most of his good innings over the last couple of years. I don't see Hamid as having any great potential to come out in Hobart and wow anyone and hit a 60, 70, 80, even 100. I don't see that happening. I don't think, I think he's now so interested in not getting himself out that it's going to be a very difficult task for him to score any runs. I thought there was a very interesting point Mark Taylor made on, I think it was Triple M commentary during the Sydney test. He said that if you asked Hasib Hamid what the field was when he was batting, he would have no idea. If you asked Zach Crawley, he'd be able to tell you where all 11 fielders are. And I think that shows the primary difference now is Hamid is so low on confidence that there's no way he can really recover for Hobart. I think we will go back to Burns. I think that is probably the safer decision. I think he is in the innings that, in his last innings before he got dropped, he actually hit a higher score than Hamid has all series. But I think despite the fact that he's looked questionable at best against Stark, he does probably have a better chance of scoring runs. But I can understand us going the other way. Hamid isn't going to have a long-term future. So it may be that you go and say, we'll leave Burns out, keep working on his technique and use Hamid as a sacrificial lamb. I think considering the test lacks some degree of meaning at 3-0 after four tests, it's not a massive issue regardless of who we pick. I don't think either's going to come in and have a barnstorming innings. Teddy, anything to add to that or has Peelage's comprehensive answer covered everything you would have had to say? <laughs> Uh, I think mostly. Yeah, I think the key thing is that um, Hamid and Burns, I don't think either of them are really the long-term future of the team. Um, but probably in the short term, Burns is the one who looks most likely to, to do something, or at least slightly more likely than, than Hamid. So I think they have to go, go with him in the short term. Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk about Ben Stokes now. Um, we know about that strain, that injury Pearson kept him out of bowling in, you could say, a crucial point of the test. Didn't cost him the test in the end and then um, certainly impressed with, with the bat, um, you know, in the, especially in that last innings. Your thoughts, oh, and in the first innings, I should, I should make clear. Um, yeah. Essentially, what he's been saying is that, you know, if as they always say, if he's fit, he wants to play. The issue is if he isn't able to bowl, can they afford to play Ben Stokes as uh, a specialist batsman? We saw what they had to do in Sydney. They were bowling Milan and Root because, I mean, and that's not all on Jack Leach. It's because they didn't have Stokes as that extra pace option. Your thoughts on that? And do they have an alternative who could come in? Is it just a Chris Wokes and they add just, a, you know, another batsman to that long tail? Or do they have a viable solution as, as a, perhaps a batting all-rounder? Well, can you afford to play Stokes as a batting as just a specialist batsman? Yes. I think it's pretty clear he is probably our second best batsman behind Joe Root. 
he's been one of the 10, 15 best batsmen in world cricket for a prolonged period now. I'm talking about from a bowling perspective. Late Does that leave enough depth? So I think what I would say is he he necessitates selection. I think Bairstow, if he's fit, also necessitates selection because he's, of course, just hit 100. And we know with his thumb injury that he can't keep. With both of them are there, that means there is no avenue to add another bowler because we will have to put a keeper in at seven. If Stokes is fit and Bairstow isn't, or the opposite way round, then I do think there's an outside shout of us bringing a Chris Wokes into the fold. I'd rather we didn't because I think we're probably better off going for an extra batsman. I don't think our bowling has really been, at least for our frontline scene, has not been as big of an issue. I think we may go Dan Lawrence because he bowls somewhat helpful off spin. He's probably at root level with his bowling. <laughs> and then you would go for four seamers because it's a pink ball test. So Wood, Robinson, Broad, Anderson, of course, which I think is probably the way we will go if it comes to that. But for the time being, I think it's going to depend on whether and whether Bearstow and whether Stokes are fit. If they are, they play and we go four bowlers. If they're not, then it's one of Pope or Lawrence. I don't think Wokes will play at seven in this test. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. No way Jack Leach plays. Surely you need the extra support. And, um, you know, interesting point on there. Pearson Leach essentially saying that just for the batting quality, again, presuming he is fit enough to play as a batsman, um, that Ben Stokes provides, um, you know, it'll be up to the England bowlers um, to pull through without him. Teddy, your thoughts on this whole situation for England? A um, bit of a jumble in the middle, middle order. Yeah, you've got to have Ben Stokes playing. You know, even if he's not fully fit, just let him play. You know, he's a warrior. He bats better when he's when he's injured. So I think, think you've got to have him in the team, almost the first pick there. Uh, I did see there were a few injury concerns with Anderson and Wood um, in the nets today, not bowling. I think probably they're most likely to play, but a uh, few things there. So maybe Wokes could come in if they don't play. Um, but... Yeah, I think I mostly agree with Pearson on this one. Um, I'd be interested to see if he would think a, a change for Robinson coming in. But, uh, yeah, I think the way Broad bowled in the last test, definitely got to go with him also. Um, and then, you know, if Bairstow doesn't play, Pearson's been singing the praises of Lawrence. So I'll be very interested to see him play, actually. I've, I've heard big things. Yeah, absolutely. And then we have to talk about the wicketkeeping position. You mentioned obviously Joss Butler on the plane home. I believe you told us it was the night of that final um, day in Sydney. Bairstow, of course, would be, of course, that other option at keeper, but he's got that thumb issue, as you mentioned. So again, perhaps as that specialist batsman. Um, a lot of talk around Sam Billings. Of course, I, I believe he made the trek down as the, the reserve keeper, if you like, uh, and joining the squad. A lot of talk about him possibly making a debut down in uh, Hobart, your thoughts on that, Pearson, and I guess what you think is the likelihood of that occurring? Yeah, I think everything points towards a Sam Billings debut in the next test. I think one of our keepers is in England, and the, the other one has a thumb injury that's going to stop him from doing anything significant in the field, let alone keeping. So I do think we're in a position where we have to bring in a keeper that's not best or butler. And, of course, the only one in the country since the Lions squad went home, which took Bracey and folks away, is going to be Sam Billings, who, of course, would be the first player to debut this series for England, unlike Australia, who I think have had two debutants this series. 
which is quite a change up from the norm because usually, although it does fit to some degree, the trend of England throwing in a random debutant in the last test of an Ashes series when we're fighting away a 4-0 or a 5-0. <laughs> so I do think he will definitely play. And I think the other thing to mention is his role in that selection debate around the middle order is, of course, he is, well, we have seen he can bat. He averaged 60-odd in the 2019 County Championship season and has only played, I think, six first-class games since. But I don't think we would show any willingness to bat him at six. And the fact we wouldn't bat him at six also means we can't put Wokes at seven. So I think what he does is he will play and he will bat seven, and that will necessitate other selections slightly further up the order of five and six. First of all, thank you for stealing my lovely stat there on the <laughs> debutants. Um, welcome to how this podcast works, stealing stats from other people. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to come back to you straight away, as much as you don't deserve it. Um, having said all that, just confirm, please, your 11 um, that you, well, that I guess you presume is going to be happening and coming forward um, for the Hobart test. Well, I mean, this is very difficult to say because it hinges entirely on the availability of Stokes and Bairstow. I think we will open with Rory Burns and Zach Crawley. I think Darren Milan will obviously get the test, as will Joe Root. I think five and six will be Stokes and Bairstow. If there is an injury to one of them, then it will be Ollie Pope that comes in first and Dan Lawrence that comes in second. I think Sam Billings is guaranteed to take the gloves. And I think depending on whether we have confidence in Jack Leach, it will either be the four seamers we normally pick, which are Robinson, Anderson, Broadwood, or we will bring in Leach for the least fit of those. But I think we'll go for the four seamer solution. Hey, do you agree with all that? I think so. But I think the biggest sign is Stokes and Bairstow will probably play. Um, and just on Billings, you know, he's looked very good. He's in great form, averaging 40.57 in the big bash. But I've seen, I think a few English fans are putting the cart before the horse a bit with some of the hype around him. Um, I heard a few saying that he's future captaincy material, um, you know, which is a bit much to be saying that already, considering he hasn't played a test. But uh, definitely an exciting prospect and brings a lot of energy, which is something the English team sometimes lacks also. Yeah, it's interesting. You say hype around it, and for once, not from our colleague, Mr. Lynch, or is it just that I haven't been on this this uh, this podcast well, in a few episodes? There's, I mean, there's, there's some degree of hype, but I don't think anyone sees him as the long-term keeper. He's got nothing really to lose because all money points towards Ben Folks taking the gloves in the West Indies. I think if he were in the country now, he would be the one set up to take his, well, not to take his debut, but to make his Ashes debut, at least, in this test match. So I think it is probably a one-off for Billings. But, of course, if Billings does go in and score impressive runs and can force his way into the side for the West Indies, then there will be more hype built around him. He, of course, is an excellent captain. He captains his county side, Kent. So if he gets in the side for a prolonged period, then definitely hype will build. Maybe the captaincy questions will come in. But for now, I think he's a lot more likely to be a one-test wonder than a long-term figure in this England side. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okie dokie, let's move on. <laughs> As always, one or two, I know Pearson doesn't always like this segment, but I like to talk about each each ground that is played at. 
um, in the Ashes. And of course, Bell Reeve Oval uh, being a new member, I guess, uh, of the Ashes family. Of course, Perth losing um, its test due to um, uh, political reasons, shall we say. Um, and, you know, going down to Tasmania, it's fair to say, you know, they are they are a state in Australia. They probably deserve to have a little bit more sports than they, they do get. We had some great tests. I mean, Ricky Ponting, I mean, one of the greatest test, you know, Australian test players of all time, you know, comes from Launceston, comes from Tasmania. This game is in Hobart. Uh, Australia. Well, <laughs> and David Boone is the other big name. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, David Boone's. a few good fighters in there. I hope I presume David Bone will be back for this um, uh, test. I believe he missed the New Year's Day test that was with COVID. Um, it's always great when they pan up to him on the television. He's just reading the newspaper just during the game. I mean, must be an interesting job, match referee. It's almost like fourth umpire. Yeah. I mean, you've got a chill job most of the time, but if something goes wrong, you know, then you you know you're really earning your money when it gets to the controversial end of things. Anyway, we'll move on. Um, as I mentioned, uh, Australia thirteen tests they've played at Bell Reeve Oval, won nine, lost two, drawn two. Uh, four times versus New Zealand, three v Pakistan, and uh, three v Sri Lanka, two v the West Indies, and one um, versus South Africa. Uh, so, you know, it hasn't really been, you know, the big three, as Pearson likes to call them, never played India there in a test match, never played England there in a test match. That, of course, changes um, due to COVID scenarios. Um, the last time they played down there, uh, actually, well, that's good, six years ago now, was that um, that infamous game against South Africa. It was 2016-17 tour, I want to say. Um, yeah, that was a debacle. That was an innings and 80 was the defeat for the Australian. Skittle for 85 in that first innings. Carl Abbott had, I think, 10 wickets for the match. And I, I mean, my memory of that is that was when we all realised that Adam Voges wasn't really a test-quality batsman after he went out and, and smacked all those runs against the West Indies and had an average of, like, 80 after a few tests. But um, that was last... He performed well in England also. Well, better than most of our bats. Yeah, oh, 2015 anyway. Ashes, good point, actually. But uh, yeah, yeah, that was a yeah. dark day for Australian cricket. They lose that series 2-1. It's all over in two tests. But that was last time, yes, yeah. um, test cricket was played down there. So, good. of course, they were due to have that Afghanistan match down there. But um, I'm going to say it again, political yeah. reasons uh, prevented that from occurring. That was going to be the warm-up, of course, to the Ashes. Never took place. Um, the only other loss Australia have had at the venue was a cracking match against New Zealand back in 2011. Seven <laughs> runs. Uh, Australia fell short. Um, David Warner, who rogs, 123 not out. From memory, that was his first test ton, and he carried his bat in that innings. Nathan Lyon was the last wicket to fall. Um, and I was looking at this interesting Stark, Lyon, and Usman Kawaja all played in that test over a decade ago. And they're all still, you know, um, fighting for selection. So, you know, interesting. Um, over a decade later, those are all still there, um, you know, as, you know, key parts. Well, Kawaja looking to be a key part of the Australian um, lineup. In terms of weather, we've always got to take a look at it. I know Pearson loves my weather reports. Um, <laughs> all kicks off on Friday. That's the 14th. Um, look, a moderate to low chance of rain early on in the afternoon, of course, this being a day-night test. Um, and then a high chance really from about 6 p.m. onward. So we could see some delay in play there. Obviously, so far out, it's tough to tell with weather. Saturday is probably the worst day for rain, 70% chance really from about 2 p.m. Uh, through, through to 7 p.m., 8 p.m. might get some play in that last session. Sunday, also rain, um, kicking off at about 6 p.m. You've got a moderate to high chance there. And then Monday and Tuesday, those last two days are really good. I mean, they're 22 and 19. Uh, a bit cooler than the opening three days, which are around 24, 25, but less chance of rain. So we hope we don't get a repeat of Sydney where, I mean, robbed of an Australian victory, or as Pearson would say, robbed of an English victory, um, thanks to the weather. <laughs> but um, hopefully Tasmania, um, you know, uh, 
can come through with the goods from a weather perspective and we can see um, some good cricket, you know, who doesn't love to sit down, get home from work, it's 8pm, the cricket's still on, you get, you get to sit through a whole session, um, you know, it, it, it'll be absolutely um, great to see. So, yes, Bell Reeve Oval will be the host. Okie dokie, before we go, let's move on um, to a quick round of uh, Good Call, Bad Call. And rather than doing um, just me giving all the uh, Good Call, Bad Call props, uh, as we've done in previous preview uh, series, we're going to have a bit of a round table. So we'll rotate through. Um, we've got Ethan Prabaharan out, Ted Jarvis in. Um, so hopefully we won't have such kind of banal, consistent agreement uh, between those two. We might have Teddy in to, to bring some debate because it was getting a bit exhausting uh, having some constant agreement. So we'll see how we go. Um, I'll kick it off uh, with one that's been interesting. We need more nasty in the ashes. Uh, this, of course, referring to the niceness that seems to exist between the two sides that certainly didn't exist if you go back even 10 or 15 years. We'll start with you, Pearson. Yeah, there's few things I can get behind more strongly than this. I think everyone is too nice. I think, I mean, you can juxtapose it against the other series going on at the minute, the South Africa-India tour, which has produced far more interesting test match cricket because the two sides hate each other. There's constant sledging. They all pick fights. Rishabh Pant went out because Rassi Vanderdusen got in his head. You don't get any of that here. You got the one time I saw any form of verbal confrontation was Zach Crawley getting scolded by Nathan Lyon, which prompted him the next test to go on and hit a quality 77. So I yeah, it really annoys me. I think it's an excellent call that you make there. I think everyone's too nice. I don't think they should talk to each other as much during the series. And I want more abuse, all this niceness. It's part of this new image post sandpaper gate that I really wish didn't happen. Okay, okay, I forgot to tell him that we'll keep our answers short, but he did agree with me, so perhaps <laughs> I'll let it slide that occasion. Teddy, you agree with that one? Good call, bad call. We need yeah. more nasty in the ashes. Unfortunately, I'm going to agree with you both here again. I, I used to love George Bailey and Michael Clark back in the 2013-14 ashes, having a go at everyone. Mitchell Johnson, obviously, also. Um, and I think it just helps to get in the game more as well. Potentially, it could be a reason Australia can't clean up matches because, you know, we just don't have that brutal edge that you sometimes need. So we say good call, Teddy. Clearly not well first. He's a first okay. time good on, call. Um, in, in this one. We'll start. I'll go to you next, Pearson. Okay. Um, despite the criticism he has received, Joss Butler has actually had a better test series than his, counter, than his Australian counterpart, Alex Carey. Just for a brief bit of background, Kerry's been in a far more dominant side, yet they both average the exact same number. Kerry and Butler have also dropped the exact same amount of catches. And Kerry, despite batting at seven, has not batted with the number eight in any innings except one in the entire series, which, yes, he's not done his role well at all. Would you agree? Would you disagree? Is that a good call? You can kick this one off, Teddy. Okay. I'm going to say good call, but with, you know, just, just purely from the perspective of this series. But I think with a new wicketkeeper coming into the team, you've got to give them at least a five or six test or even more bit of leeway as they develop into the team, develop into their role. Um, Kerry's keeping was very poor in the last test uh, and looks to have a few issues with his stance that we brought up. But you know, you, you can't compare both of them. Butler's been in the team for a long time. You really shouldn't be making any mistakes behind the stumps. Um, whereas Kerry, you know, new keeper coming in, give him a bit of a break, I'd say. 
Well, I must yeah, say, despite saying it was a good call, every reasoning you gave there was for it being a bad call. But I, well, I do, I do just, think I see where you're going with it. Yeah, yeah. Purely in this ser series, if you just looked at it objectively, um, you know, it, it would be a good call, but you can't look at it objectively. Okay. Yeah, it's, again, it's very hard to um, say that he's had a better series when you look at the, what the rest of the team around them has done. Of course, someone's going to look at Kerry's performance more um, you know, more favorably. Yeah, exactly. You talk about the same amount of drops. People remember the Butler drops a whole lot more because they, you know, they were more critical in deciding. Was it Adelaide where he had some really crucial drops with players who wanted to make big yeah. scores? Yeah. Yes, yeah, he dropped Labashain twice on his way to yeah. 100. Very cost us. Four times. Very cost us last tested. Yeah. Very did cost in <laughs> In Sydney, many ways, you could say, yeah. Until Sydney, I wouldn't say drops, Butler ever cost us a test match. Those drops were constantly outplayed. That Bearstow runout chance, that was abysmal, really. Yeah. I'm not sure what it yeah, is. Yeah, there have been multiple. I think I think Kerry cost you a test in a way Butler hasn't. I think that is worth yeah. mentioning. I think we've been comprehensively yeah. outplayed. You've outplayed us and still not won because Kerry's not taken the requisite chances. Yeah, I think so it's a good call, but I'm not putting the whole test yeah, loss on yeah, Alex yeah. Carey. Um, I'm putting it on <laughs> oh, the declaration. Um, but I would say Teddy said, I oh, could give him a chance. Adam Gilchrist scored, was it 80 in his first test innings and then went on to yeah, make but... an unbeaten 100 and win a test match from nowhere yeah. against Pakistan at Bell Reeve in 1999. Yeah, so, but that's Adam Gilchrist. I mean, that's you a high Ian... lofty, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, have, you can't you have... be looking for the next Adam Gilchrist. You have yeah. to look for the next dependable keeper that's Adam Brad Haddon. Brad Haddon was yeah. very successful in the early no, days. But this is... the back. Yeah. But did he debut like... that successfully? Like, I don't know, but he might. Going back in history a bit now, I know... I'm not an expert on these days, but I, I think Ian Healy, you know, struggled a little bit in his early tests also. That's because that's because keepers weren't expected to be batsmen before Gilbert. He really changed the whole idea of okay. what a kid. They used to average like 21. Ian Healy has what, yeah, like three or four true. test hundreds? You, Adam Matthew Gilbert Wade developed, Matthew Wade developed into a batsman. His keeping dropped off. Yeah. But his I don't think there's any off. danger of Alex Carey becoming an, a solo batsman in this side. Yeah, although although you you would agree that he's not droppable, wouldn't you, Vass? I don't I don't see any evidence yeah, because... dropped prior to a future series. Whereas that's not the case for Butler. So you're saying Butler's performed performed better, yet the team has performed worse, and yet he is more droppable than the player you're saying who's performed worse. That shows you that successfully all they, they many yeah, cracks. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Eddie, we're on to you now. What have you got for us? Okay, so I've got Lyon has been Australia's worst bowler to have played two or more tests despite taking the most wickets. Uh, Pearson, we'll start with you. Well, just, just to quickly run through it, who's, who's played two tests for Australia? Mitchell so Stark, just Cummins, Stark Cummins just the Boland, three. Cam Green. He counts, he's a bowler. Yeah, okay, if yeah. you count Cam Green, sure. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a good call. I think the bar's been set extremely high. Yeah by the others. I think we do have one bowler with the best average in test history. We have probably the best start performance in three or four years. And of course, Cummins is captaining and is always bowls well. So I think, yes, it's a good call, but it's also to some degree, it doesn't mean that he's had a bad series. He's just been outshone by four extremely good bowlers. Well, I'm looking at Australia that have all top five in wicket takers this series, which is just stunning. I'm looking at this now. Lyon, as you mentioned, despite being at the top, you look at his average, um, 23. Oh, gee. I mean, Stark has the worst average, but you wouldn't dare say that Stark's been worse than him because he's taken wickets at big times. Um, 
I think it has to be a good call because aside from maybe Cam Green, which would be a bit of a hard, I mean, can I count Cam Green, Teddy? Of course. Yeah, yeah. Okay, no, then, it, then it's a bad call. I think Cam Green's been, been worse than Nathan Lyon. Not based on what we expected out of him, just based on uh, pure performance. Okie dokie. We're back to me, are we? Um, oh, gee. How about... This is, a, this is a one I thought up of. I'm not sure it'll make sense, but I thought it was interesting. Joe Root is a better all-round cricketer than Stephen Smith. Bowling, batting, fielding. Pearson. Yes, easily, because he's a much, much better bowler. I mean, Smith is a better batsman, but it's a case of two generational greats up against each other. Smith is clearly better, but I think the gap between... Root and Smith's bowling is greater than the divide between Root and Smith's batting. Root is more than a part-timer at this point. He bowls, he is arguably the England side whenever we don't play Jack Leach. He is our primary spinner. You can never rely on Steve Smith to be your primary spinner. I mean, although the last three overs at the SCG suggested otherwise, he's your third choice spinner behind Labuschagne. So I think in the profession that they're supposed to succeed in, Smith is better. But as an all-round all round captain, no. And this is not including captaincy. That's the other thing to know. I'm happy to go, but, but fielding, <laughs> I mean, they're both pretty good fields, but I would think Smith is, is quite a way ahead still. Smith, Smith is a better slip catcher, but again, again, yeah, he did, he did have tough. a series-defining yeah. drop. Root has series been defined. Okay, let's hold on the series defined. Come the series on, test, test defined. Okay, I, I retract that test defining. But I, I do think, dropped, I think the out bowling differential makes him an overall all-round cricketer better. But I don't think it matters. I think it's a bit okay. of a question because the batting is what matters. He's already digging into them bloody round two here. <laughs> what I would say is you're saying he's a better, but that's only because we have we get to see more of him. And the reason we get to see more of him is because the rest of the bowlers are so goddamn useless. Teddy, what do you yeah. think about this one? I fully disagree oh, yeah. with that. It's a, it's a bad, bad call. You know, Steve Smith has been in probably the top three batsmen since, what, 2015, in a way that Root just hasn't had that consistency. With his bowling, he's potentially the most under-bowled bowler in world cricket, I would say, as we saw in the last few overs of the, of the game. It was a bad call, and now you keep saying good things about it. What do you mean? No, no, no. Uh, Steve Smith is the most underrated, underrated. Oh, okay. Right here. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah. Right here. Oh, right here. Okay. He, uh, He's gone mad here. He hasn't lost any of his skills. But it, it, the more important point, my piece de resistance in here, is that uh, Smith has an aura on the field that Root just doesn't have. You know, he, he, oh, I, I, okay, I agree with that, but I don't think that makes you a better all-round Yeah, that doesn't factor in. No, it does. It's the, the intangibles want. that... Maybe on the intangibles, but on the tangibles, you're wrong. Well, why are we only doing tangibles? I prefer to act on tangible. It's like it's like it's like it's like looking. It's like your Marcus Harris point again. He doesn't score any runs, but the intangibles are he looks good. Therefore, see this is why this is why England of argument. This is what England don't understand. This is why you struggle. This is why we don't put you two on a podcast. It's either Pearson and perhaps who can't stop agreeing with each other, or these two who can't stop bickering with each other. This is a sign of England's. England's inability to understand what really wins games. You don't have the winning. Oh, no, 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 no. We're not starting another <laughs> argument on here. This has become a debacle here. Pearson <laughs> attacked my prompt, but you both said opposite. You both differed on it, so I'm counting it as a victory. Pearson, give us another one. Good call, bad call. Okay. Um, d- despite how dominant this Ashes series has been for Australia, 
Australian cricket is actually not in as good of a place as people think, and they're in for some heavy defeats in the subcontinent over the next year. Good call, bad call. Bad call, bad call. I think uh, I've said it before on the podcast, we're on the, you know, this is the start of something special from the Australians. We've got probably the most bowling depth that, you know, any team could boast of for a long time with Richardson and, and Nisa and even Bolland. We've got batting depth with, with Kawaja, Renshaw's making runs again. Josh Inglis is there also around the mark. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the depth, the, the subcontinent, you know, that, that's a question, but all teams have that question. And I think that we're the best place that any Australian team has been for the past at least five years to be able to tackle that um, just from the quality of our players, even if they don't have, a, have the record in the subcontinent at the moment. Well, that's the second oh, Matt Renshaw reference um, in this episode. Um, I don't think it's a very brave call, considering, as Teddy said, no one's really had success. But, well, England, uh, Pearson loves talking about that England series win over there. It was a 2013, 14, quite a way uh, long ago now. But um, no one, especially Australia, but yeah. 2012. But Australia haven't had a lot of success in, in, this, in the subcontinent. Um, so it's not really that brave of a call to say that we will continue not to have success. I, I don't... I think heavy defeats is a bad call. I think oh, Australia can okay, come I'll, close I'll, I'll, I'll in re- games. I will, I, will, I will rephrase for the sake of intrigue. I think you will do worse in the subcontinent than England did in the last year. In that and I how think did you, you do? Get whitewash. We beat India in a test, and I don't see you doing that. And we whitewashed Sri Lanka, which I think you might replicate. Yeah. Well, so I think overall you will do worse because we in- were competitive in pretty much every test. Yeah, well, India aren't going to make the mistake of the pitch that they gave you for that first test again. They'll be more like... Well, they, they might the do. That's thing. the thing, is they generally each series provide one of them. And England, for some reason, despite the fact we can't pass 300 in this series, have shown a much greater propensity to score big runs in the subcontinent. I mean, there's if, I, if I'm to defend my point here, England do have, by a distance, the best player of spin in the world in Joe Root. Australia have, at present, Warner, who hasn't been in the subcontinent for four years. Labuschagne, who's never played in the subcontinent. Smith, who is good, and otherwise a bunch of entirely incompetent players against spin. I mean, Marcus Harris went out to a very loose delivery. Head has gone out incredibly cheaply regularly. You look at how Cam Green has batted. I don't see him scoring any runs against a high-quality Ashwin, Judeja, and Aksar Patel. I struggle to see that you can retain any modicum of form that you have from this series into at least that series. I think Pakistan will be close. I think you'll draw that series. I think you'll beat Sri Lanka, but I think you'll lose very, very heavily to India in a lot less close series than you had in 2017, I think it was, when you lost 2-1. Yeah, I mean, you see why we don't normally let him do the props because he's turned this segment into a rant segment like all the rest of them. Um, I think it's a, he's just trying to take away attention from the fact that even though Australia are doing so well in demoralising England, he's just focusing on oh, when Australia will do bad in the future. Um, well, no, I you see the one, the one, the one focusing on it here is Pat Cummins, who said when it was three nil, we should look beyond the whitewash to the subcontinental series. So clearly, you have some eyes towards it. So I feel it's the right time to bash the Australians while their egos are so. Any time for you is the right time to bash the Australians. Okay, we're moving on quickly. You two are going to give me one more, and then we might do a speed round. But uh, this could go on for a long time. Pearson, oh, you just gave me one. Sorry, Ted. Well, yeah. Okay, Um, Australia will never be a top test side 
um, unless they get rid of the weakness in their side, more aggressively declare um, and enforce some follow-ons. Um, this was this was from Prabs, but I would also add to this that uh, there's even more signs of weakness. I think that uh, the discontent about Justin Langer is also a sign of weakness in the team. You know, he's been a great coach for us, um, so in good signs here, but it's just people not liking his coaching style that uh, does it. So no, we, we've I've linked everything in here. But and we're going to go one Australian word team. answers on this one. No elaboration on this one. One Bad word call. answers. Jason, you go. Very, very good call. I'm just disappointed because you You've stolen my good call, bad call, and I'm thoroughly disappointed. Uh, it was a good one, but did you rant about this in our previous episode or was it off air you were going on about this for many, many hours? I think it was primarily off air, but I have ranted okay, on Okay, well, well, you're saving it for our Ashes Debrief podcast because there was a lot to talk about Sounds there um, and we want to be quick here. Um, I've got a couple of jokies. Uh, Ollie Pope's greatest contribution to the England Ashes cause so far this series has been with the gloves. Yeah, I mean, it's a good call because he's not really done anything else. I thought he looked excellent in Brisbane, but yeah, he's not done much with the bat. He averages 12. So yeah, he's been the cleanest gloveman the entire series from either side. So great call. Yeah, well, he provided good banter on the sidelines in Adelaide also, I seem to remember. So, but uh, yeah, probably a good call. Okay, either of you two got any more? Or did Teddy use up your last one, Pearson? Uh, I can, I'm sure I can think of, well, I'll, I'll go for a slightly more broad brush question. So everyone goes on about how test cricket is dying. I think tests like the one we've just seen at the SCG prove it's not dying. In fact, the format that really is dying is one day international cricket, and that's the format that needs to be saved. Yeah, I think it's an obvious call, uh, and uh, by you know reason of that, it is a good call. But I disagree that it needs to be saved. I would not have. A, I mean, why don't we just make ODIs? A, I mean, I know why you'll say the answer. This I don't like ODI series if it's not involved in the World Cup. To be honest, I think the T Twenty World Cup could one day probably become of more importance than the ODI World Cup. Um, due to the fact that ODI as a format is becoming less and less relevant. Um, Personally, I, I, I go the exact opposite way. I would remove all T20 internationals. Make well, that's T20 just not going to happen because of the money ODI involved in that and the TV <laughs> well, rights. That, that, is, and... that is the difficulty, yes. Although so, the IPL makes more money than the T20 World Cup ever will. So arguably, yeah, if but you it's still in the T20 further, format. it makes up the difference. Well, yeah, but that no, I didn't say bin T20. I said bin, bin T20 internationals. So you keep T20 domestic leagues and you have leagues like the IPL as the pinnacle. Because as we saw, although Australia won, it was very impressive. That so again, T20 he's World just Cup trying to admit it because really Australia finally got good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did. But that World Cup didn't hang in the memory in the way your 2015 World Cup win did. I think... Because it was on Australian soil, first of all, and we'd won like that, five of well, the then, last then go, six. Go back, go back to the World Cups before that when you won what, two in a row or three in a row. Three in a row. <laughs> yeah, it was three, wasn't it? England weren't making it past is, the group I think, stage. I think ODIs carry more majesty than T20 internationals ever will. And I think the calendar is now too congested. Let's bin T20 internationals, make them a franchise league. We can avoid scheduling internationals during the IPL in that situation. And then make tests and ODIs the true formats. That they should okay, be fine. I'll say there. good call, but I would ultimately yes. like to progress further than good that man. and remove ODIs and have only tests. 
as a international Ooh. format. You can have your World Cup, but I don't want to see these like two ODIs after a test series. It's an absolute waste of time. <laughs> Teddy, good call, bad call on that one. Yeah, I think it's a good call, but I'm going to agree with Pearson um, in supporting ODIs. T20s are a limited format of cricket in a way that test and even ODIs are not. Um, and I think the ICC are taking steps um, to, to make the ODIs more meaningful in terms of the World Cup. Um, and with teams like Bangladesh and even Namibia, um, hopefully Zimbabwe at some time, you know, some of the minnows are sort of rising. Um, and I think if that brings more pressure on the, on the big sides to perform before World Cups, that could be the, the way out and make the series more meaningful. Yeah, well, I think they're all pipe dreams at the moment. We I think we all know the way cricket is going with T20. Again, that's not international. That is in a franchise mode, but um, I can't see the ICC deferring away from that. Um, I've got one more to finish here. We should be looking for a permanent replacement for Sydney as a test venue. Pearson. <laughs> Terrible call. <laughs> it's the only ground England have any I don't think he got the joke. So of course I love Sydney. <laughs> yeah. Teddy? No, come on. That, that's... It's quite a bad call, yeah. Although I saw in the, the UK Telegraph that they said that the Bellary Oval is going to be England's home away from home. So, you know, maybe you can move on to that. But, well, uh, as soon as we'll England, if England win there, Pearson will want every SCG test or every Perth test there for the rest in, in Bellary for the rest of time. Yeah. Accidentally. Yeah. That's yeah, we how can it goes. the series at Bellary instead of the Gabba. I can get behind that. That's Bellreve. Um, <laughs> is it Bellarive? I actually never knew it's, that. It I is spelled Bellarive, but it is said Bellarive. Or Blunston Arena, if you like the advertisement name, yeah, Boot but, Company. Yeah, anyway, it's been a wild, wacky, and a late night episode of the Ashes Central podcast. Before uh, we close up, I have to throw to Teddy, uh, who has a special announcement, I'm told. Yes, well, it's some, some great news uh, for the Ashes Central podcast. The big milestone of 1,000 listens um, in total has been crossed. So uh, if my maths uh, doesn't fail me, that's like one, what is that? <laughs> one a thousandth of a way to a million. So uh, we thank all of our, uh, our listeners uh, for being here with us uh, in these episodes. And when, you know, when we are the big, when Sports Central is the huge big corporation that it, it will become, we'll remember you first few people here who were with us uh, in the early days. So yeah, thank you all for listening. Here, here, indeed. Okay, we're going to see you back on Friday night for a day one, or well, day night one recap um, from Bell Reeve Oval down there. Uh, in the meantime, Teddy Pearson, thanks for being here. Thank you, Vass. Uh, sorry yeah, we ruined much. your episode a bit there. And hopefully England ruined Australia's fun in uh, we, we will see how we go. That was all right. Certainly an interesting podcast today, and we will see you all on Friday. Bye for now.